Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Healthcare Manifesto series of podcasts on universal healthcare, brought to you by the Medical Podcast Network. My name is Mark Ravis, and I am honored to be your host. In today's podcast, we are going to dive into the history of health insurance in the United States. But first, let's review where we left off last time. In the last podcast, we discussed some early forms of social insurance in the United States, even dating back to Presidents George Washington and John Adams. We also briefly discussed Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto, which set forth the theory of constant conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and how that created demands in Germany and elsewhere for state-sponsored insurance to protect workers in the dangerous factories of the Industrial Revolution. As a result of workers' demands, Bismarck, the German chancellor, was forced to provide both workers' compensation insurance and health insurance. At the same time, we noted that the United States was entering the Progressive Era, which was characterized by the increasing power of corporations. This concentration of power in corporations was attacked by the Teddy Roosevelt administration with tough enforcement of antitrust statutes. Many state governments adopted workers' compensation systems largely patterned after the German example. There were at the time a large number of sickness funds set up by fraternal organizations and large employers. These funds actually dated back to the Civil War. Bills for compulsory and statewide health insurance were introduced in many state legislatures during this time. The most notable efforts were in New York and California. However, the movement for compulsory universal health care completely failed due to opposition from the American Medical Association, known as the AMA, as well as opposition from some powerful unions and the insurance industry. Today, we are going to move on to discuss the evolution of health insurance in the United States. We will start with the Great Depression, as it had a major impact on the development of the healthcare system. As you know, the stock market crashed in 1929, and we entered a severe depression. Well, the Depression hit the medical industry hard. Hospitals couldn't get paid. Hospitals were going broke. For example, Baylor University Hospital in Dallas experienced a revenue drop from $239 to $59 per patient. And occupancy dropped as well. Contributions dropped by two-thirds. And charity care was up 400%. The administrator of the Baylor Hospital was desperate and came up with the idea of enrolling 1,250 public school teachers into a plan in which they paid 50 cents per month and in return got 21 days of paid hospital care. This was known as the Baylor Plan. It did not cover physician services as the AMA was violently opposed to that. 
1932, the American Hospital Association approved prepaid hospital insurance, like the Baylor Plan, as a solution to hospitals' desperate financial conditions. These plans were called the Blues. In 1937, the executives of the existing Blues plans met in Chicago and officially created the Blue Cross organization. In order to get the support of the American Hospital Association, Blue Cross plans made a fateful compromise that affected health care costs for the next half century. That compromise was that hospitals would be reimbursed on the basis of their cost, not on the value of their services. The higher their cost, the more money hospitals would make. Actually, hospitals would be financially hurt by being efficient and containing cost. With this compromise in place, the American Hospital Association was on board and supported the development of the Blue Cross plans. The American Hospital Association, known as the AHA, helped draft the rules for the Blue Cross plans. The rules were that the Blues had to be nonprofit, could not compete with one another, had to cover a specific geographic area, and could not cover physician services. By 1933, there were 26 Blues or hospital service plans. Most states did not consider these hospital service plans to be insurance, but rather as prepayments for hospital services. This was a very important distinction because insurance companies had to keep adequate reserves and pay premium taxes in the states in which they were doing business. Legally, insurance companies were and are regulated by the states and not the federal government. If the hospital service plans weren't considered insurance companies, they didn't need to have cash reserves and they could be excused from paying certain taxes. The first state to change the designation of hospital service plans and call them insurance companies was New York. Legislatures used the logic that if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. Likewise, if the blues looked like insurance companies and acted like insurance companies, they are probably insurance companies, and we can regulate and tax them, the legislators thought. Well, the service plans went into a panic in New York and were able to exert sufficient political pressure to get the legislature to pass what is known as enabling legislation, which enabled them to be exempt from insurance regulations as long as they were nonprofit, served a definite geographic area, did not compete with one another, and emphasized public welfare. The American Hospital Association and the Blues were even able to get their organizations designated as charitable organizations. They were, by according to their bylaws, supposed to be run by dignified and ethical administrations. These designations and the enabling legislation created significant economic advantages for the Blue Cross plans. 
The plans argued that the hospitals themselves were their reserves and guaranteed that they could provide the necessary hospital services. By 1939, 25 states had enacted this kind of enabling legislation. The hospital service plans were renamed a few times, but eventually became the Blue Cross plans we know today. After development of the hospital service plans, Medical service plans were developed to cover physician fees. The first such plan was established in California in 1939. These plans allowed for free choice of physicians and were indemnity plans rather than service benefit plans. This meant that the plans paid the patient a fixed amount of each covered illness and it was the patient's responsibility to pay the doctor. These plans became known as Blue Shield plans. In 1982, Blue Shield merged with the Blue Cross Association to form the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. The Blues continued to enjoy significant tax exemptions, although some of these were revoked in the mid-1980s and others still continue. California, for example, revoked the Blue Shield tax exemption in 2015. The complete story of tax exemptions and the blues is somewhat beyond the scope of this podcast. We may devote a future podcast to the economic benefits which accrued to the Blue Cross and Blue Shield programs by virtue of the enabling legislation and the great tax advantages that they enjoyed. Now let's talk about prepaid health plans. Have you ever wondered why Kaiser has its own hospitals? Let me tell you how that came about. Kaiser is a type of prepaid health group. This type of group first appeared in the late 1920s in Los Angeles. It too was intended as a way to make sure providers got paid. A group of doctors, led by doctors Ross and Luce, offered to provide comprehensive care to 2,000 employees and their families of the Los Angeles County Department of Water and Power at negotiated prices. This was good for both the employees and the physicians. However, physicians not part of the group were enraged. They thought their economic interests were threatened. The American Medical Association was also enraged and went on the warpath against doctors forming these prepaid group practices, which were actually early forms of what in later decades would be called managed care. There were several such groups formed after Ross Luce in different parts of the country. Physicians and the AMA struck back hard against doctors forming these groups. They excluded them from local medical societies and even tried to revoke their medical licenses, and sometimes they were successful in doing so. Without medical society membership, doctors like Ross and Luce could not get hospital privileges, so they had nowhere to practice. Therefore, they had to build their own hospitals, and they did so. Similarly, Dr. Sidney Garfield started Kaiser in California in 1933 and had the same experience and hence had to build Kaiser hospitals so the participating doctors had a place to practice. That's how all those Kaiser facilities started. Eventually, the American Medical Association and certain physicians working with it were criminally indicted 
and convicted of conspiracy to violate Section 3 of the Sherman Antitrust Act for hindering and obstructing the operations of Group Health Association, Inc., in Washington, D.C. Group Health was a nonprofit corporation organized by government employees to provide medical care and hospitalization on a risk-sharing prepayment basis. It employed full-time physicians on a salary basis. It was a risk-sharing prepaid health organization. The case of Group Health Association went to the United States Supreme Court and was decided in 1943. The convictions were upheld. The decision was written by the famous Justice Owen Roberts. It was an important swing vote during the New Deal. At this point, it is important to note that commercial insurance companies hesitated to jump into the health insurance market because of two factors unique to that market. One, the customers most interested in buying the insurance were those who were either sick or most likely to get sick. And two, once purchased, policyholders had every incentive to declare themselves sick and seek out medical care. This was far different from other types of insurance, which ensured discrete events as opposed to health per se, which does not lend itself well to discrete measurements. Consequently, the commercial insurance companies initially refused to offer health insurance and offered hospitalization and surgical coverage because admission to a hospital and a surgery were discrete and measurable events. The policies were indemnity policies, again, meaning that the companies paid their insured rather than the provider. Providers wanted it this way in order to avoid insurance companies just dealing with select providers. Eventually, commercial insurers did offer health insurance and minimized their risk by something called experience rating as opposed to community rating. We'll discuss those concepts in greater detail when we talk about the Affordable Care Act and the further rise of commercial insurance. Thank you for listening. We will pick up in the next podcast with what was happening with the idea of compulsory national health insurance at this time.